Good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I am Amy Laster. I'm the Vice President of Science and Awards with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. So I have uh, been with the Foundation for 13 years now, so I've attended a lot of vision. So I'm pretty excited that we're back uh, together and, and the sessions are ongoing. Um, this is the clinical research updates for ushers. And if you've attended a visions in the past, you may remember this as doctors in session. So it's essentially the same. Um, it's gonna last approximately 85 minutes and we're going to reserve lots of time for questions um, from the audience. This session, like all of our others, are being audio recorded. If you're using an assisted listening device, please turn to channel one. Thank you. I, like I didn't look at the, the sign on the outside of the door. Thank you. Um, and don't forget to silence your cell phones. The speakers for this, sessions, um, this session are Drs. Astra uh, Denlescu and Dr. Jackie Duncan. Um, Dr. Den, uh, Denkulescu, thank you. <laughs> forgive me, uh, currently holds an assistant professor position right here in Florida at the University of Florida down in Gainesville. Um, she has extensive experience in recumbent AAV vector biology and gene therapies and animal models. Um, she was recognized as an emerging vision scientist at the National Alliance for Eye and Vision Research and met with Congress members to advocate for vision research and funding support in our continuing fight to prevent blindness. Um, her laboratory is mainly dedicated to developing therapeutic strategies for Usher syndrome type three, which is an inherited disorder caused by mutations in the Claren one gene, and we'll hear more about that um, today. Um, she has experience, again, with animal models and is one of our uh, current grantees for the development of an Usher III uh, animal model, which we may hear more about today as well. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce Dr. Jackie Duncan as well. Uh, she's an ophthalmologist at University of California, San Francisco uh, Medical Center, uh, currently serving as the interim chair of um, the ophthalmology department there, which I'm really excited about. She specializes in treating retinal degeneration, such as RP, as well as ushers, and um, other retinal degenerations. Um, her expertise includes the diagnosis and treatment of Usher syndrome, cone rot dystrophy, Stargardt's disease, um, and as well as the use of experimental techniques to slow or prevent these conditions. So in her research, she studies treatment to preserve visions and to use devices to stimulate visual perception in patients. Uh, Dr. Duncan is the foundation's chair of our scientific advisory board and it is always a pleasure to, to work with Dr. Duncan. Um, so I wanna turn the floor over now to our speakers. Great. 
you start. Thank you, Amy, and thank you all for being here. It's really, as Amy said, such a pleasure to be back in person with people at Visions 2022 this year. It's really lovely. Um, we are really, I'm really pleased to work with Dr. Dinkulescu. Um, when I've done these sorts of sessions before, we spend a few minutes at the beginning giving sort of an overview of the disease in question. Um, I bring the clinical perspective. Dr. Dinkulescu brings the science perspective. We both kind of complement each other in that way. Um, so I'll just start by saying Usher syndrome is a sort of con collection of diseases that all, we use that word to describe a collection of diseases that all share in common hearing loss and vision loss and retinal, caused by retinal degeneration. And so there are three and some actually more recently four different kinds of Usher syndrome. Type one is associated with early onset severe hearing loss from birth uh, that may get worse over time but usually is pretty severe at birth and station, relatively stationary. Later in early childhood, early sort of mid-childhood, early adolescence, patients with Usher syndrome type 1 develop trouble with night vision, followed by trouble with peripheral vision, and then progressive loss of central vision. Usher syndrome type 1 is also associated with balance difficulties. And there are six different genes associated with Usher syndrome type 1. Usher syndrome type 1b is the most common associated with mutations in a gene called myosin 7a, but there are a number of other less common ones which I can talk about uh, today if people have specific questions about them. Usher syndrome type 2 is as common as Usher syndrome type 1 but is associated with hearing loss at birth that is milder. It varies from sort of moderate to mild. Most people with Usher syndrome type two develop speech and with speech therapy can work, can get along pretty well with hearing aids um, and uh, don't usually require cochlear implants. People with Usher syndrome type one usually do not develop speech unless they have very intensive speech therapy and often get cochlear implants to help with their hearing. Usher syndrome type two, the hearing is less, loss is less severe and often can be managed with hearing aids. Um, it doesn't usually get worse over time, although it can get a little worse over time. They develop vision loss beginning in their sort of late teens to early 20s, starting with vision loss at night, and then again subsequently develop peripheral vision loss and eventually over many years develop central vision loss as well. Usher syndrome type 3 has normal hearing and vision at birth and over time, usually beginning in late childhood to adolescence, patients with Usher syndrome type 3 develop progressive hearing loss um, and vision loss. Their balance is variably affected. Um, and those types of patients sometimes benefit from cochlear implants, often benefit from hearing aids. Um, and Dr. Dinkulescu will tell you a little bit about therapies being developed for Usher syndrome type 3. That is associated with only one genetic cause, associated with mutations in a gene called Clarin 1. And very recently, there's been described an Usher syndrome type 4, which has been characterized by normal hearing and vision at birth, and later onset, like in the 20s to 30s, 
progressive loss of hearing and vision. The eye findings, the uh, pattern of vision loss is a little different than the other ones. It tends to be localized in a particular way. Like if we as ophthalmologists take a look at the eyes, there's a pattern where the vision, the changes in the eyes and the vision loss is sort of around the center. It's called sort of pericentral. Um, and that's more recent. That's only been described as recently as 2018, associated with a gene called aryl sulfatase G. All the different forms of Usher syndrome are autosomal recessive, meaning that each of the parents carries one changed gene, form of the gene, uh, oftentimes not the same change, different changes in the two different parents, and they don't have any trouble at all. Their vision is fine, their hearing is fine, they don't have any problems, but each of them, because they carry one copy of a change in a gene, has a 25% chance of passing that change gene onto their each child they have. And each child then has a 25% chance of getting two changes in the same gene and having trouble with their hearing and their vision. They have a 50-50 chance of being a carrier, just like their parents, and having no symptoms and being completely fine, but having the possibility of passing it along to their children. And they have a one in four, 25% chance of getting neither copy of the change gene, having two normal genes and, not, and being completely normal and not even being able to pass it along. Um, the last thing I'll say, there's, I didn't mention this, there's three different genes associated with Usher syndrome type two. Um, six with Usher syndrome type one, one with type three, and one with type four. So there's 11 definite co genetic causes, very complicated genetically, lots of different causes. Most common for type one is Usher1b, which is myosin 7a. The most common for type two is Usher syndrome type 2a, which is caused by a gene called Usher2a. That also can cause non-syndromic RP, which means vision loss with normal hearing uh, throughout life. And that is the subject of a big natural history study funded by the Foundation Finding Blindness Consortium called the Rush to A study. And that's completing this year. So we should have data, four-year follow-up data from the Rush to A study this year, which we hope will inform the design of clinical trials for Usher syndrome type 2A. There are some clinical trials that are currently enrolling patients with, with Usher syndrome type 2A, and we can talk more about that. Um, if you like me to. It's uh, associated with um, a treatment. So real briefly, I don't want to monopolize this conversation, but uh, Usher syndrome type 2A is caused by a mutation in a gene called Usher2A, which is very large. Many of the Usher syndrome genes are very large genes. So they don't fit conveniently into the package called adeno-associated virus, which Dr. Dinkulewski can say a lot more about than me. So I'll hand it over to her when we start talking about viral vectors. But they're too big to fit into those kinds of delivery systems. So more creative ways of delivering that gene are being developed. One approach is using a technique you might have heard of called CRISPR, which was described in about 2015 or so, resulted in the Nobel Prize being awarded to two scientists, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, in 2020. That's a way to identify a specific genetic change or sequence, do some modification of the sequence such that the change is repaired, and then can uh, put it all back together again such that a more normal copy of the gene is present in the cells. So that is one approach, which is not yet in clinical trials, but maybe someday. 
Another approach, which is in clinical trials, is using an approach called anti-sense oligonucleotides. So ASOs or AONs, both are used to abbreviate that term. Uh, and that's a way, again, recognizing a very specific change in a gene. So they look for the most common genetic cause associated with these diseases. Ident so this is a little piece of RNA or DNA that finds a specific genetic change, looking for a change in a gene that is common cause of Usher syndrome type 2a in this case. They finds the gene, the genetic change, and skips over the spelling mistake in the gene so that a normal protein will be produced. So there's a company called ProQR, which has developed this kind of antisense oligonucleotide approach for the most common cause of Usher syndrome type 2A. Uh, there's a particular exon in Usher the Usher syndrome type 2A gene called exon 13, which their antisense oligonucleotide can find, bind to, and skip over so that that whole exon does not get read and turned into a, gene, a protein, and then Hopefully, by skipping over that particular exon, the a normal copy of the protein will be produced. And certainly, the, it's been shown already in phase one and phase two studies that that treatment is safe. So they're moving now to a phase three study, which is enrolling patients, and we'll learn in the next few years whether that is a safe and uh, effective therapy for patients with Usher syndrome type 2a. The hope being to keep, so by producing a normal copy of that protein, the hope would be to keep things from getting worse. It is not a treatment that's going to bring back vision cells that have already gone away, but the thought would be to keep the cells alive as long as possible and prevent the vision loss from getting worse over time. With that, I'm going to let Dr. Dinkuleski talk for a little bit. Thank you, Jackie. Good morning, everyone. I would like to thank you for being here today. This is my first visions meeting, and I have to say it is, uh, is a very rewarding experience. Uh, I'm very grateful to the Foundation Fighting Blindness for funding my research. I will talk about this as well. Um, so basically, I would like to give you an overview of our current efforts to develop a gene therapy approach to prevent blindness in Usher syndrome. For, um, to do this, we need uh, to have two essential tools. Tool number one is to have the so-called adeno-associated viral vectors to deliver the correct copy of the gene, the gene that is affected in Usher syndrome, to the retina. Why adeno-associated viral vectors? Because they have been proven to be relatively safe, and we know about Loxturna, we know that this treatment works in patients, and Loxturna basically is an adeno-associated viral vector. So what is, what is this vector? It's nothing mysterious about it. It's essentially a DNA core. Yes? Do you mind slowing down a little bit? Of course. I'm so sorry. I'm talking really fast. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. I will please remind me again if this happens, because okay. I may have the tendency to do this again. So adeno-associated viral vectors. They contain the missing gene, so the missing DNA, the, the gene that is affected in Usher syndrome, for example, can be packaged inside the core of these viral vectors. So we have a DNA which is surrounded by a protein coat. So the protein coat is like a sensor. Once we deliver it inside the retina, 
it can specifically bind to the cells that are our intended target. In the case of Usher syndrome, we know that photoreceptor cells die. So these are essential neurons which absorb light. And they, once they absorb the light, they transduce, they convert the light into electrical signals, which then go to the brain. And this is how vision is, is, uh, is uh, starting. So without photoreceptor cells, we, we, were, we are not able to see. Uh, therefore, with adeno-associated viral vectors, we have a protein coat which enables the virus to specifically bind, attach itself to these photoreceptor cells and deliver the gene which is missing or which is affected in, in, the, in Usher syndrome. So once the, the genetic material goes inside the cell, it reaches the nucleus, and then the protein production can occur. So the protein which is missing in Usher patients now is being produced after gene therapy. So these are essentially harmless taxi delivery tools. They deliver the cargo, which in this particular case is the genetic material, to the correct cell type. Now, um, the second, so I mentioned one key ingredient is to have the correct gene therapy tools. The second ingredient, and some people do not understand this, why is it so important to have this? The second major ingredient is to have a model, a disease model, which mimics the vision loss that the patients experience. Why is this important? It's important because we need to have a tool to measure the efficacy of our gene therapy vectors. We want to know what happens after we deliver these vectors to the retina. Does the vision go up? Does the vision go down? Are photoreceptors preserved? Are we making the vision worse? We cannot answer these questions in cell culture systems. So we need animal models. For, for a very long time, researchers, in order to understand the function of a specific gene in the eye, they create mouse models. In other words, they disabled, they disabled the specific gene in mice, and then they look for effects. How does the mouse lose the vision? And they have done the same thing with Usher syndrome genes. So we know that Usher syndrome is caused by mutations in at least 10 distinct genes. So we have mouse models that were generated for each specific gene. However, it was very disappointing when we realized that all of the mouse models develop hearing loss. So they do mimic the hearing loss in the patients. However, they do not develop vision loss for reasons that we do not understand. This is a, a mystery in science right now. We do not understand why, in spite of all our struggles, and even in my lab, we generated several mouse models, hoping that we can get them to mimic the human disease. However, after repeated efforts to analyze their vision with uh, electroretinography, optical coherence tomography, fundoscopy, we realized that the retina in these animals is intact, even though they miss the genes that are affected 
in the Usher syndrome. So theoretically, they should develop the disease, but they do not. Therefore, in my lab, I made the decision to generate a large animal model. And uh, large animal models, for example, primates or, or pig models, they have a retina architecture that is more similar to human. Their eyes are large, and there are many similarities to the human eye. A few years ago in Germany, Dr. Uwe Wolfrum and a, a large group of people developed a group, developed a pig model. So the entire group worked to develop a pig model for Usher 1C, which has defects in a protein known as harmonin. So in the pig model, harmonin is essentially gone, is missing. And uh, the publication just came out two months ago. What they noticed is that the pig model loses vision. And this was quite a, a landmark study because it showed that unlike the mice who maintain their vision intact, the pig loses vision over time. Moreover, they performed a very small proof of principle uh, study in which they delivered gene therapy vectors, the adeno-associated viral vectors, to the pig eye. So they, they put the gene, the, the gene that basically produces the harmonin protein, they put it inside the pig eye with adeno-associated viral vectors through a subretinal injection approach. And then they noticed in the few animals they injected that the, the treated eye had actually uh, functional restoration versus the eye that received buffer injection in which the vision was, was not improved. Yes. Yes, so I, uh, in that particular case, when I, when I read their manuscript, they performed uh, tests in this animal similar to those that uh, um, physicians use uh, to, to look at vision loss in patients. So they, they uh, looked at fundoscopy and they also looked at electroretinography to determine if there is, if the retina responds to light. So it's the so-called ERG analysis. Um, and uh, uh, basically, uh, they, they noticed that both the rod vision and the cone vision is improved. Uh, and we know that the rods are the photoreceptors that are responsible for vision in dim lights when, when, when it's really dark and we are, they enable our vision in dim lights. And the cones enable our vision in bright lights, such as like in, in this room. So in the pig model, and again, this was preliminary data. However, it was published in a very good journal, and it was quite spectacular that they saw encouraging results the, in the pig model with the harmonin gene delivery. So this was the Usher 1C, um, Usher 1C subtype, because there are, as, I, as Jackie mentioned, there are many clinical subtypes. It's important to know which subtype you have, because I will I will explain in a moment why this is important. Um, so we, for a very long time, we assumed that photoreceptors are the target cells for all of the Usher genes. Why? Because photoreceptors die in, in Usher syndrome. And many studies who looked at the protein expression in photoreceptors, they detected the protein expression in these cells. So in other words, they looked at the retina 
and the researchers asked themselves the question, where are these proteins produced? Because we know the retina is basically like a cake or like an onion. It has multiple layers, and each layer has a specific neuron. And photoreceptor, uh, photoreceptors are in the, in the last layer of the retina, and they are beautifully stratified. So we know that the other neurons in the retina in Usher syndrome are intact, but photoreceptors die. So when they look at the retina and try to ask themselves the questions, where are these genes expressed? Where are the proteins? They detected them in the photoreceptors. So in Usher syndrome, if the genes are defective and if the proteins are not produced, then you will see that they are no longer being made in photoreceptors and photoreceptors begin to crumble and degenerate and lose function and structure. So um, what the assumption was that was that the, all these proteins that, that are the Usher proteins, they function in large complexes that are all present inside our light-sensitive photoreceptor cells. So if you damage one protein, the entire pretty much complex collapses. And this is why the patients, all of them, have a common, common uh, manifestation of the disease, even though multiple genes are affected, because all these proteins interact. Like we are together in this room, this is how the Usher proteins uh, are in the photoreceptors. However, I came across a very shocking discovery a few years ago when I looked at the Usher 3 gene, which, which basically produces a protein known as clarin-1. And to our surprise, we look in multiple species. We looked in human retina, in mouse retina, in the pig retina, in non-human primate, and we did not see any evidence that this protein is produced by photoreceptor cells. In other words, clarin-1, which is the protein associated with the H3 gene, is in a different room. It's not, it's not here. So when, when we realized this, we were, we were very surprised because this, this is an anomaly in a way. We expect all these genes to be clustered in photoreceptor cells. Our study was published two years ago in the Journal of Pathology. The study shows that clarin-1 and other genes, not just clarin-1, are actually produced by a cell type which is known as the Mueller glia. This is not a neuron. It's actually uh, a specific cell type that uh, functions as a glue, if you wish. It, uh, it uh, connects all the photoreceptor cells and other neurons in the retina, and it helps them survive. It helps them communicate better with one another. So uh, in our studies and studies from other researchers, we, um, we begin to realize, based on these studies, that Mueller glia plays an important role in specific subtypes of Usher syndrome. So this is why it's important to know what kind of mutation you have in which gene, because when, uh, when we study the disease, it may be important to target Mueller glia with adeno-associated viral vectors and not the photoreceptor cells. So uh, if we want to, to provide gene therapy in patients with Usher 3, for example, in the future, if clarin-1 is indeed produced by Mueller glia and not photoreceptors, 
we have to deliver it to the correct cell type. So we have to engineer our, our virus, adeno-associated viral vector, in such a way, so in this case, it binds to the, to the Mueller glia and not photoreceptors. Yes? Uh, yes, it's M-U-L-L-E-R. M-U-L-L-E-R, Mueller. The functions of the Mueller glia are many, and uh, I, will, I will be completely honest, we do not understand the disease pathology. We do not understand why a protein which is expressed in Mueller glia affects the photoreceptor cells. So this brings me to the next layer of our discussion. It is very important, I believe, in my opinion, before we actually uh, move into the humans with our gene therapy studies to perform a thorough, thorough um, analysis of the mechanisms that cause the disease in order to be able that we develop a safe approach. And so in my lab, we developed a pig model, a large animal model of Usher syndrome type 3. We used the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to basically uh, disable the, the Usher 3 gene. So in, with CRISPR-Cas9, uh, what, what you have essentially is a molecular scissor that enables you to go inside the cell and uh, destroy a specific gene. So in this case, the goal was to generate a model which no longer produces the Usher 3 protein, which is clarin-1. So we disabled, in the pig, we disabled the Usher 3 gene. So now we have these animals, they are at the University of Florida. We analyzed the vision loss in these animals just, just a few weeks ago, basically. And what we did notice in our preliminary studies is that it appears that the pigs lose vision in the dim lights, which is basically a very promising step forward in the sense that it tells us that the pig model may be a good model for the disease. Please go ahead. Yes, so we, yes. So we developed this large animal model, Usher 3 pig model. And the reason we developed this is because the mouse models had no vision loss. The mouse is not a good model. Yes, that we believe, but this is what I'm telling you. This is based on our first, we just developed. This is like very, very hot news because, and I presented some of these at ARVO this year. Uh, so I believe my, my poster is still out there. Um, the, so we, we, had, we have done uh, studies in mouse models and unfortunately, they do not lose the vision. So uh, this is why basically we, 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 uh, I reached out to uh, our collaborators that have experience in generating pig models, and they are the, the National Swine Center uh, in Missouri, Columbia, and they developed with CRISPR-Cas9 technology this pig model of Usher syndrome type three. Then uh, the pigs were transferred to the University of Florida and uh, our uh, collaborators, uh, Dr. Maureen McCall, uh, who and, and her group, who have extensive experience in looking at vision in pig models, because these, these are these are really large animal models, and you need special skills to look at their vision. 
they determined, they arrived at the University of Florida, they looked at the eyes of the pig with electroretinography, and they determined that the pig has lower vision based on the ERG data at low light intensities in our preliminary data. So this is encouraging because it allows us to study the disease and to test gene therapy options. So clarin is a very small gene, which means that we can package it, we can put it safely inside our adeno-associated viral vector. So Jackie mentioned that some of the Usher genes are very large. They will not fit inside this uh, small virus. However, even in those cases, we can, like Usher 1b, myosin 7a, we could theoretically develop a gene therapy approach by delivering two vectors. So we put one half of the gene in one and the other half in another, and we deliver them simultaneously to the retina. And what happens inside the cell, they will basically combine and produce the full-length missing protein. So this is being done right now in, in uh, um, uh, animal models. So, yes. Just really, I'm thinking about a way to um, talk about how we, you know, an analogy about how we deliver these genes. And so if you can imagine, let's imagine for a minute that like FedEx had only one size of box and it's the small size. I don't know if you've ever shipped something from FedEx, but they've got the small and the medium and the big. And you can, it maybe costs a little different amount for each of them. But if you can envision the small box, that's like the adeno-associated viral package, okay? So we know that one small one has been studied in people. We know it's safe. We know how to deliver small genes with that. But, and, and Clarin 1 gene fits in that box. So that's great. We're gonna, for Usher syndrome type three, we have a box that can deliver with the right address on it, this gene. But we've thought that the address should have been the photoreceptor cells, right? Because those are the effect, affected cells. Well, it turns out that Dr. Dinkulescu and other people have figured out it's not actually the photoreceptors that need to get that box but their next door neighbor, we need to switch the address up just a little bit so we can send it to their neighbor, which will get the package that fixes the gene, and then they can do whatever they do, bake the cookies or you know, deliver the lasagna to the next door neighbor to keep the vision cells alive. Um, more, sort of many other causes of Usher syndrome are caused by genes that don't fit into the small box. So we can either, deliver two different, like half of the gene in one small box and the other half of the gene in another small box to the same house. And when it gets to the house, we open up the boxes and put the contents together and make a nice protein. So that's one approach, dual vector means that half of the gene is in two different boxes. You get both the boxes to the same cell, vision cell, photoreceptors, um, and then they can make the normal protein. Or you could get a bigger box. Uh, and so there's other kinds of DNA delivery devices like lentivirus or like other kinds of approaches that are able to carry more stuff than the little box that can fit into the AAV virus. Um, or you could do something totally different, like use the little box to deliver something, another way to fix the gene, which is maybe with CRISPR-Cas9 that uh, Dr. Dinkulescu was saying, they use that kind of an approach to create a pig model. Um, so people are working on that 
approach as well. So there's, those are some of the delivery challenges that we face in getting a normal, healthy copy of the genes that cause Usher syndrome to the cells that might help the cells, the vision cells survive, whether that be the cells themselves, as in the case of most of the causes of Usher syndrome, most of the genetic causes of Usher syndrome, or in Claren type 1, the next door neighbors, the supporting cells, which are called Mueller cells, that are the glia that help keep the vision cells alive and working properly. Um, and we change the barcode on the package with the address to determine which kind of cell gets the treatment. Um, so these are some of the challenges that have been the problem that it made it so hard to treat these diseases for a long, long period of time. Um, the last thing, the antisense oligonucleotide is a little different in that it is not in a package exactly the same as we've been talking about. It's not a viral vector. It's actually just a little piece of naked DNA that comes. And so it would probably, instead of the viral vectors, which you deliver DNA to a cell with a viral vector, and it gets incorporated into the cell on kind of a permanent basis. And then that cell can keep producing the protein maybe hopefully for as long as the cell is alive. The antisense oligonucleotides is not in a viral vector that is incorporated into the DNA of the cell. It's just a little piece of DNA that the cell uses to make protein, but eventually it gets broken down and goes away. So those antisense oligonucleotide treatments have to be done on a regular basis. And this trial that is on enrolling patients right now, phase three trial, um, involves in treatment with this little chunk of DNA or RNA in that case um, on a regular basis. So it has to be reintroduced every so often. So it's every six months or so, I think, is the approach for that, that trial. Um, because it's not integrated into the DNA of the cell and isn't a permanent solution. It needs to be repeatedly injected on, on a regular basis. OK, questions. Go ahead. Why don't we get microphones um, to the people in the audience for questions? Why don't you start? I have a lot of questions, but I might just. Why don't you start with one and with then we'll switch after, around? Like, afterward, but okay. One thing I was wondering is for the gene therapy specifically, you're saying that they're integrated into these, the cells. So let's say for type 3A, it's the Mueller gliocells, but then the other types in the photoreceptor cells. Yes. And this is, is this happening before the damage? Because if. If in RP the photoreceptors are dying and they're gone and we're introducing the genes and the cells aren't there anymore, how is that function? Like, how does, what's the point? Yeah, no, you've really hit on a very important point. So, um, and it's for, like a two part question, but then the let's second. Let's start with that one if okay. you don't mind. If we can do one at a time, it'll help me process a little bit more. So, this is a challenge in retinal degeneration therapies. We want to deliver the protein to the cells, but the cells, as you said, are missing the protein. So, either they're gone, they've already disappeared, or they're just not functioning well. Sometimes, what happens in these cells, uh, these diseases, is there are some that are gone, and the ones that have gone away, we can't treat. This is why gene therapy really is important to get people at an early stage of disease when they still have as many cells remaining as possible to benefit from the treatment. The thought being that the ones that haven't gone all the way away yet are either not working properly or may in the future not be working properly. So the goal is to get the right treatment of the proper DNA to the cells that still remain in hopes of helping the ones that still remain to see better and to survive longer. It isn't a good idea or helpful, as you just said, for people with advanced stages of vision loss 
loss, who don't have any cells remaining, those are not good candidates for these kinds of treatments because it's a little too late. So the hope is to identify people early while they still have lots of cells remaining so that we can introduce the normal healthy copy of the gene, help the remaining cells to see better and to live longer. That actually is a good transition into my second part of the question is because not every single mutation for Usher syndrome causes a protein to not be produced. Some of them still do create protein, but they're just not functional in my understanding. And so if you are doing the gene therapy and you have a lot of the photoreceptor cells and maybe they're just not working as well as they should because these proteins aren't working as well as they should, with the gene therapy in the cell, are they not competing for protein expression, like how do you overcome, so like if, if the protein's not being expressed at all, I can see gene therapy working very well, but if the protein is being expressed and you're resulting in a not functional protein, how do you tell the cell to not make the non-functional one and to make the functional one yeah. in those cases? You wanna take that one? Yes, so I think this is, this is a, a oh. this is an extraordinary question and uh, uh, I think this is the reason we need animal models. And to, to answer your question, on a shallow level, I can answer it like this. I can, on a shallow level, I can tell you Usher syndrome is a recessive disorder, meaning that it is caused by the lack of protein, not necessarily that the protein is absent, but the protein is unfunctional. Correct, correct. However, these genes are expressed in very, very low amounts. So we believe that unlike other diseases, for example, the dominant disorders caused by the, like the P23H mutation in rhodopsin, rhodopsin is, is very abundant in photoreceptor cells. So we believe that if we do, if we, if we utilize this uh, gene replacement or gene augmentation, it's, it's called gene replacement, it's confusing, we are not replacing the gene. Yes, we, it's, but, but the, the AAV technology I described, you will see it in the literature, it's either gene replacement or gene augmentation. It's the same thing. What it means is that we put the virus into the cells and we produce the protein. It should not, it should not interfere with your existing protein, which is altered. For example, many patients with uh, Clarin-1 mutations, they, they, many patients fall into the category known as the N48K, uh, patients in which we have um, this, this specific mutation, asparagine N48 to lysine mutation. And we know in that case the protein is being produced. Uh, however, uh, presumably the protein is unfunctional because it does not go to the correct cellular localization. If we put the correct um, gene which makes the normal protein, theoretically we should be able to prevent vision loss. It should not, the existing protein, which is the bad protein, should not interfere with the function of the good protein. I guess, yeah, because I, I didn't know if the body would respond in a way that, because the bad protein is still being made and it's still triggering the immune response, even if you have the good protein also now being made because the bad one is still being made and triggers the immune response. Mm -hmm. Yes, I... You have to, like, right. make I, it so that the non-good one is Right, right, and and um, I believe that um, so so the, the bad protein will remain inside the cell, 
and it will be degraded in most cases. So it basically, it's an equivalent, a synonym, to not having the protein expressed at all, like a knockout animal, the so-called knockout animals in which we take the entire gene out. It's a quick way to see, to detect the, the function of a specific gene. This is why researchers create a lot of knockouts. However, in the case of Usher syndrome, we have this, this, this very, very um, strange situation which we cannot explain in which the mouse models retain vision even though we take the gene out or sometimes we create point mutations in the mice to mimic those in patients. Even in those cases, the mice are still, the, the retina is completely uh, intact. So the function and the structure of the retina in the mice continues to be intact. The bad protein, uh, we, we never, this is, this is another, another issue with this Usher proteins. The majority of them, including Clarin-1, are expressed at such low levels that we cannot even see them inside the retina. We can see the precursor, which is the messenger RNA. We can detect that. And we have new technologies. We have the single cell uh, technology, single cell RNA-seq. This is how you will find it in the literature that will allow us to detect precisely the origin of these proteins inside the retina. This is how we came to the conclusion that clarin actually is produced by Mueller glia. We never saw clarin protein. We could never detect it in spite of thousands of attempts by us and other researchers. We literally tried different technologies. However, with this new technology, the single cell RNA-seq, we could definitely say that it is in Mueller glia. We, do, we did not detect it in photoreceptors at all. Does this mean 100% that it is not in photoreceptor cells? The answer is no. We need an animal model. We need an animal model that has vision loss. And our next step is to put it back in Mueller glia or to put it back in photoreceptor cells and determine which one has therapeutic effects. If I can yeah. say just one more thing to that point. Um, I appreciate the really significant importance of animal models, but what I can say is there are people, human people, <laughs> who have a different genetic form of retinal degeneration caused by mutations in a gene called RPE65, which is a little different because it's, it's a little different in a lot of ways, but uh, it's a gene that's expressed in the retinal pigment epithelial cells instead of the photoreceptors. And those human people have been treated with gene replacement. And some of them have, like you said, not a null mutation, but a missense mutation. And they are benefiting from the treatment. And so, you know, you, I appreciate your concern that it might not work, but at least in that case, it has been shown to work. And so certainly it works in mice. That the, What was exciting about that, let me back, just use as an example, a different gene, which is also small and fits into AAV, and is a little different because it's in RPE cells, so there's a lot of differences. But uh, in mice, when we reintroduce the RPE60, a healthy copy of that gene, the mice slept better. In a dog model, which is a larger animal model, that happened naturally just happened where dogs happen to also have that same form of vision loss that was a little bit like what people had. Reintroduce the protein, even if it was a missense, it wasn't like not making it all, it was making sort of an abnormal copy, help them see better. Human people got the treatment and they see better. So the hope is, the belief is, the feeling is that even though it may not be a null mutation, it may be that there's a miss, an abnormal copy of the protein, if you can get a normal copy of the gene in there, the thought is that it might keep the cells alive longer and help them to work better. 
You're welcome. Yes, I have a, hi. hi, Dr. Duncan. I have a, a follow-up in regards to what you were talking about for the antisense oligonucleotide treatments. You mentioned that it's a, a repeated um, treatment, not like not like Luxterna, which is a one-time treatment. Correct. Would you could you speak a little bit more to how that is how that is done? Is it yes. like an outpatient, and then yes. like how frequent? I will be happy to talk to you about that. Um, I was just looking on my phone to see what the frequency is. Um, and so if I say this wrong, please forgive me, but I think it's every six months. Uh, somebody can correct me. There is, so it is uh, in, is that right, Dustin? <laughs> Thank you, Dustin. <laughs> my patient, my friend, Dustin Buck, is sitting in the front row. Uh, so we've had this conversation when I was a little bit more prepared with a piece of something in front of me that I could quote, quote more correctly. But okay, so it, uh, it gets injected into the eye. So as an eye doctor and a retinal specialist, I see patients every week in clinic. Many of them have a more common forms of vision loss caused by abnormal blood vessels growing under the retina or on the retina. And that can be from either age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, vein occlusions, things like that. But there's treatments for that kind of problem that are um, injected into the eye in the clinic all the time. And that treatment is a protein. It's an antibody against another protein called vascular endothelial growth factor. It causes blood vessels to shrink down. That isn't that important. But what you should know is that protein lasts in the eye for about one to two months. And so that protein has to be given again and again and again because the effects wear off. So I see patients every week that I have to give this treatment to. Um, and I, in the clinic, I clean the eye up really carefully with some antiseptic kind of stuff called betadine, which is a little irritating to the eye. That's like probably the worst part of it, is using the betadine to make sure we prevent infection. And then I take a teeny, teeny little, smaller than a hair needle, and I put the medicine right into the eye. And so it goes into the place called the vitreous, which is the jelly that fills up the eyeball. And it floats around in there, and in that case, it causes the blood vessels to shrink down, stop leaking, and not bleed. So this is a similar delivery approach. It would be administered in the clinic. I would be using a little skinny, tiny, small needle um, after making the eye nice and numb and very, very clean uh, to put it, the medicine into the eyeball. There's a little part of the eye where we can very safely introduce medicine on a regular basis. So that's how that treatment would be delivered every six months. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, they, they don't, the reason I'm being a little cagey about that is initially in the phase one study, they just did it one time to see how it was. And they, they think it lasts a long time. They think it lasts maybe even longer than that, but they think six months is probably a, a reasonable amount of time because it does break down. It doesn't integrate into the cells and get expressed on a long-term basis. So eventually it has to be given again. And for this trial, they're doing it every six months. Does that answer your question? Yeah. It happens in the clinic, doesn't have to go to the operating room. We're very comfortable with that kind of treatment approach. We do it all the time. It's like we do it many, many times every time we see patients. You're welcome. Hi, uh, thank you both for being here and talking with us. Um, if we know how the Usher mutations affect like the photoreceptors, the Mueller cells, clearin one, um, do we know how the Usher mutations affect the things that cause hearing loss and balance issues and uh, any other presentations that Usher's might have? 
Do you want to answer that one? Oh, you want me to answer? Let me. Oh, how? Okay. I think if I'm understanding the correct question correctly, is these genes, all ten of them, all cause vision loss and hearing loss, and some of them also cause balance problems. So, do we know how they affect other parts of the body, like parts of the ear or parts of the cochlea, things like that? So. You can answer this if you like, or I'm happy to too. Uh, so there's a part, many of these, so clarin one being in the Mueller cells is probably a little different, but the rest of them, most of the rest of them, are expressed at a specific part of the cell called the connecting cilium, and every cell in the body has a cilium, actually. Um, the ones in the inner ear um, are really important for hearing and balance, and ones, the part of the photoreceptors called the connecting cilium is a really important part of the cell that is, uh, that helps, it's like a highway. It gets the cell, the proteins from the nucleus where they're produced down to the part of the vision cell, the outer segments where vision occurs. And so it's kind of like a, a, a highway. It's kind of like a thoroughfare. Um, the connecting cilium traffics protein from the place where it's made to the place where it behaves. Um, so that is also an important part of other cells in the body, including the um, the cochlea, which is the part of the ear that does hearing. Um, and so the thought is that some of these genes are expressed in the connecting cilium, just a second please, <laughs> of different cells, we'll get the microphone to you too, um, different cells in different ways. And what's really fascinating about your question is that the same gene sometimes does or does not cause other symptoms. So there's the Usher 2A gene causes retinal degeneration, but doesn't cause hearing loss at all. Certain mutations in it do cause hearing loss. So some people with mutations in Usher 2A can have Usher syndrome with hearing loss from birth. Other people have normal hearing their whole lives. And uh, there's a person at this meeting named Rob Hufnagel, who you might have heard speak yesterday, who's a geneticist. And he has taken uh, all the patients who are part of this natural history study called the Rush 2A study that we're doing and looked at their genes, and, and other people have reported similar things, but in this particular study, we're finding that certain kinds of mutations put you more or less at risk for having Usher syndrome versus just having RP. And it probably has to do with how severe the, the damage to the DNA is. For example, people who have a null mutation where no protein is expressed at all are more likely, not 100%, but more likely to have Usher syndrome, whereas people who have a misspelling tend to be more likely to have retinitis pigmentosa with normal hearing at birth. So it's a very interesting question, um, and I don't think we understand it completely, but um, I think that's that's the like kind of simplistic answer um, that I could, could give you. Do you want to address that well, too? I, I just, I would like, since people have questions, I can talk about this a little more, but I would like for the people to ask their questions. You, just while so, they're getting a microphone, go ahead and give a thought on that. Oh, all right. So um, we, we know, uh, based on the animal models, again, since animal models display hearing loss, we know that the way these Usher proteins function in the ear is by generating a glue, a network, to basically keep together these projections that uh, Jackie was mentioning. So we have the, in our hair cells in the cochlea, we have stereocilia that are like antenna that allows us to to hear very well. And if the Usher proteins are missing or if they are defective, this glue-like structure that allows this, this stereocilia to remain together and function as a bundle is affected. 
So this is why sometimes we may see such, such diverse phenotypes, such diverse manifestation of disease, because these proteins function together and in combination with other proteins. So depending on the patient mutation, they may present with variability in manifestation of disease. So if I'm the person who has been deaf since birth, I've had balance issues. I then had night blindness as I got into my teenage years, and now I'm 50. Are there treatments when you comment that you should be in a cell, you should have a cell transfer when you're very young, that is best, but I'm 50. And I've been deaf since birth, I have those issues. Tell me what there is now for me. Well, right now, we don't have effective treatments, right? We have no treatments that have been approved by the FDA for Usher syndrome. There are clinical trials underway that are designing, that are studying, investigating whether treatments are gonna be safe and helpful. And the cell, if people still have vision, that means they have some vision cells. And so that means there are some cells to treat. So I think anybody who still has some measurable vision, and again, each trial has different rules, which are called the inclusion and exclusion criteria that say whether a person can be part of the trial, depending on how much vision they have and what their eyes look like, um, that determines whether or not they can be part of the study. And then it, uh, people enroll in the trial, and if the trial shows that a treatment is safe and helpful, then the FDA will likely give it approval, and then we can offer it to patients who still have vision. If people don't have any measurable vision, gene replacement is not likely to be helpful for them. However, there's other kinds of treatments that might be, including things that you might hear about at this meeting, like optogenetics or stem cells or prosthetics or other ways to restore vision, but today we're just thinking what we've been describing is gene augmentation, where if you can get a normal, healthy copy of a change gene in a that's causing a disease into a cell that hasn't gone away yet, you might be able to rescue that cell, help it to see better and live longer. Hi, okay, my name is Steven, hello everybody. Um, okay, so last year um, I finally did the, uh, the genetic testing, I believe it was, um, me and my parents, and I saw what we found out that they both have a trait of the Usher syndrome, which created this wild magic. And um, they told me that um, because I don't, I don't carry a certain cell that um, there is no testing for me. I mean, there is no, um, I guess, not a cure, but you know, there's no treatment for for me because I don't have. Um, do you know if um, I don't know? I guess I'm asking: Is that true? It has something updated since then? Um, because I never got a phone call about it. Um, my main thing is really besides my hearing, um, my night vision mm -hmm. is really really bad. So I don't know if there's some sort of contact that um, that helps even in the night or something, because I know my friend here, she wears um, a contact that is kind of like tech, right, or something, and yeah, she gets to see for a certain amount of hours. 
vision, but I don't have any. Um, mine's is different. I just have a, I had a vision issue for a different reason. I don't have any form of syndrome. So basically, um, he just needs to know if there is somewhere he can start back to get a proper you know, treatment or what would you suggest for him to like really have a clear answer as to which way to go? Well, I would suggest, I don't know where you live, but I would suggest that you see a retinal degeneration specialist who can examine your eyes, measure your vision. They're probably not gonna measure your hearing, but they will give you some information about your eyes. They can carefully look at the results of the genetic testing that was performed on you and your family members and tell you which form you have. And there may, depending on what the genetic cause of your hearing and vision loss is, there may be trials underway that you could maybe participate in, or even if you're not a, a candidate for the trials, you may benefit from the results of the trials at some point in the future. Um, in terms of helping you to get around better at night, they can also sometimes refer you to a low vision specialist that can give you information about technology and uh, strategies and adaptive approaches that can help you make the most of the vision that you have and that um, there are new adaptive technologies being developed all the time that can be helpful for people who have lost night vision or side vision or central vision. So I don't know where you live, but I would find a retinal degeneration specialist, and there are many associated with the Foundation Finding Blindness and not, um, that can be, you, know, you really should see someone who is an expert in this area because these are not very common diseases, and regular ophthalmologists are often not as well informed um, about the specific problems you're, ch you're challenged by um, as, as somebody who is an inherited retinal degenerations expert that can really give you information about the latest updates. Because as you said, new things happen all the time and, and there's probably new information available since the last time you checked in with somebody. Thank you. I have a question. My adult daughter, she's now 38, but at the age of 21, she was diagnosed with ush, ushers. Of course, they didn't have the genetic testing 17 years ago, and five years ago, they finally found it was USH2A. Mm -hmm. Should she have another genetic profile done, but because she, she wasn't eligible for the Pro-Q trial? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much stuff out there that it, it you know, updates, it seems, almost monthly. Should she have another profile done, or just yeah. leave it alone? Well, it's, it's wonderful that she had genetic testing that identified with clarity what the cause of her vision loss is, and if it was associated with if it, was, if it was found to be conclusive and they said, yes, this is caused by mutations in the H2A gene, she does not need to have additional genetic testing. Um, ProQR, which we were just talking about, this um, antisense oligonucleotide treatment is designed specifically for people who have mutations in the H2A gene, a specific part of the H2A gene called exon 13. It doesn't help for people who have mutations elsewhere in that gene. Um, so she does not need additional genetic testing, but, there may be other ways to treat H2A in development that are not specific to exon 13 mutations. So ProQR would not be a good option for her because it's working on a part of the gene that is okay in her. It's working to fix a problem that doesn't exist for her. Um, but there are other ways, dual vectors like uh, Dr. Dinkuleski was talking about, or CRISPR-Cas9 or other kinds of approaches that may be not specific to exon 13 that may be able to replace the whole H2A gene 
or maybe specific for the kind of S2A mutation that she has. I don't know which kind she has, but it sounds like not exon 13. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, I wouldn't, she wouldn't be a candidate for the ProQR treatment, but there are others in development that may be helpful for her. You're welcome. Hey, this is Meredith. Um, I just had a question. Um, this is more about an opinion. About it's an opinion. I just need an opinion. Oh, sure, sure, sure. It's an um, opinion. I went to go see, I went to a, a really good retinal specialist at a research facility, and one of the side things that we suffer with is macula edema. And yeah. I've been doing the Diamox, and I've been doing that for years to get the most of the vision. Yes, I'm in my 50s. Uh, the vision, usable vision that I have. But this particular retinal specialist researcher wants to try a new procedure. And I'm leery because I don't know, um, it's, nobody else is doing it. So talk about doing the injections. So for the macular edema, he wants me to come in and do a steroid shot. Mm -hmm. And I'm really scared because I need to know what I have is good, but am I taking a risk that is worth it? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of uh, shall we say controversy about steroids. So. Uh, macular edema is a complication that affects probably a third of people. It's very common, but not a universal um, side effect in people with Usher syndrome and retinitis pigmentosa as well. And it complicates central vision, whereas we said most of the time, the first thing to go is night vision and then side vision. Usually central vision stays good for a long time unless people get macular edema, which can make the vision not as good. So the first line of approaches, it sounds like they've already tried, is a treatment called carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, which is a diuretic basically to help suck the fluid out of the retina, suck the edema away. And for many people that works. For some people, um, a drop will work. For some people, a pill will work. Sometimes we take a break and it works better after a little bit of a break. Um, but it doesn't always work for everybody. And it can be really challenging to treat. The, so then we think, well, what are some other ways that we treat macular swelling or macular edema? Well, in people who don't have retinal degeneration, sometimes we use these treatments I was talking about earlier that we use for people with diabetes or vein occlusions or macular degeneration that is caused by age-related macular degeneration. So there's two different approaches. One is to use this thing called uh, in, an antibody against vascular endothelial growth factor. These are these... There's two, several of them on the market that have been approved. Um, those need to be given every month. And those will probably make the, the fluid go away, but they are not a permanent treatment, and they, are, um, they have to be repeated every month. So that's one way to think about it, is anti-VEGFs, which are these relatively safe treatments that we do all the time for people with diabetes and vein occlusions. The other thing people sometimes say is steroids. And some people in the retinal degeneration world think that inflammation is a really important reason people lose vision from this disease. Inflammation in response to dying cells. Um, and so some people think steroid injections in the eye are a good thing to try. And you know, some people, those same people have lots of success stories where they can say, oh, this patient did a lot better afterwards. 
Um, there are risks associated with those treatments, which sometimes include pressure in about a third of people. The pressure in the eye will get really, really high. After one of these treatments, we usually can manage that with either drops or surgery. Um, oftentimes, people get cataracts. Almost everybody will get cataracts if they get enough steroid injections. So it's a risk balance that we have to consider. And there's always risks with everything we do. Steroids have risks of cataracts and high pressure. Um, and a little bit of a risk of an infection. Anti-VEGFs that I was talking about earlier have a risk of infection, sometimes cataracts. Um, it's, you know, it might be worth a try. Uh, none of it is guaranteed to work. Um, so we always, you know, the benefit would be maybe it will help. Uh, the risk is maybe there will be some side effects that we have to, to manage. Um, and so if we have tried everything else and nothing else is working, it might be worth a try. The other thing to know about macular edema is it kind of fluctuates, kind of comes and goes. And so sometimes you'll come in and you'll check it and it's really bad. And the next time you come in and you check it and it's much better. And you think, oh wow, I made it all better. But it turns out that boy, that person didn't treat, take anything that month. And so that's where it gets really challenging to know um, what the best thing to do is. And we have to very carefully consider whether the risks of these treatments um, are outweighed by the potential benefit. Does that answer your question? Okay. <laughs> I don't have the, I can't give you the, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you those are the things we think about. Um, this is Monica again. You said earlier that with the different types of Usher, the onset, like the age of onset is different. And I know that, so for the ear, the, um, the genes play a role in development, in, early development, I'm assuming, but with the retina, I'm guessing it's not a part of early, I guess I'm wondering why with the different Usher subtypes, the age of onset is different, like what's the, the, um, the trigger point? Because I know you also said we don't fully understand the disease pathology yet, but what do we know about the disease pathology and what do we know about what triggers this to happen if we're not born with the RP already? Yeah, you are born with the genetic changes, and some, some point in time, the uh, genetic changes, so, so people with mutations that cause Usher syndrome develop retinal cells normally. They have normal cells in their retina at birth. And at some point, depending on how severe the mutation is and which gene is affected, the retinal cells start to not function normally and not survive. And at what point that happens varies a lot uh, from, what was your, your bet? I mean, what's the, path, what's the pathology starting point? I mean, in the eye, we have the light, the light hits the photoreceptors, uh -huh. we experience oxidative damage, our cells have to repair, and is it just like this high turno turnover of cells and eventually what we're born with gets depleted and yeah, then maybe. we start having these not great functional, like what's the, the beginning of the disease pathology? Right, so given that there are 10 different genes that cause this, there's probably 10 different but answers to your question. But you said it's part of the complex? But yes, okay. and so most of them are expressed at a part of the cell called the connecting cilium, yeah. which is important for trafficking of proteins. And so eventually the road starts to break down. The potholes accumulate and the road starts causing damage to the trucks that are carrying stuff up and down that highway. And this is because of the oxidative light 
damage? I don't know if it's oxidative or if it's something else. If it, okay. you know, maybe oxidative damage plays a role. I don't know for sure that that is the mechanism in all 10 of them. It may be other si so sorts of damage that cause the cells not to properly tra traffic the protein from the nucleus where the cells are made, the protein is made down to the fission area of the cell, the outer segments. Um, I think eventually, what this is very simplistic, and I'm generalizing in, in a great way here, but most of the genes are expressed at this location, and eventually, over time, the maybe all the other proteins that are part of that can compensate for a while, and eventually, this one important ingredient to the asphalt that makes the road smooth starts to degrade and starts to break down, and you get a little crack, and then it turns into, you know, you have some freeze thaws of ice storms and the pothole grows and eventually the trucks start to like have flat tires and eventually the protein doesn't get to where it needs to go. It's different for each person, honestly. People don't understand exactly why it's different for each person. There may be other genes that are important. Certainly all the other things contributing to this complex probably can compensate for a certain amount of time. But eventually the part of the complex that is abnormal in people who have muta uh, mutations in genes that cause Usher syndrome isn't holding up its, its end of the, the, the deal um, and isn't pulling its share of the weight and eventually the uh, mechanism breaks down and vision gets worse. And then the vision cells die. Is that a very simplistic answer? I, would, I appreciate your answer. I think I was looking more for the science, like Well, the can, if you tell me what gene it is, I'll have a better idea. What? Which gene specifically of it the ten? Doesn't I don't care which gene specifically, but they're all I, a little different. So I know, yeah. but like the actual mechanism, the pathology, um, we have light that hits the cell. The cell absorbs the oxygen. The oxygen creates ox free radical. The free radical disrupt the protein layer. Like what's happening in the eye? That's, that's all true. I, I see. Go ahead. Just Why don't you? I, I just and I, we can talk afterwards, but okay. but I just wanted to say this is a critical question that you are asking and it's actually part of my, my grant to the National Eye Institute. It's very important to understand the sequence of events. Why is it that in certain patients it happens early? Why is it that in certain patients there is a delay in the photoreceptor damage? What is the sequence of pathological events? What dies first? Is it the photoreceptor outer segment? Is it some connection between Mueller glia and photoreceptor that's disrupted? We do not yet know that. We understand it better in the cochlea, but we do not understand it in the retina. Hi, my name is Julie. <clears throat> um, I've attended the 2014 Usch Coalition, the 2019 in Germany, and now here for Visions and getting more updated information about Ushers. Uh, way back, I've been kind of following a recipe uh, all these years because I've known that it's going to be a while for the, the trials to be conclusive that they can be able to help cure Usch2A. Um, and it's indicative that you need to keep those the cones and rods and everything healthy, so when you guys finally do have a cure, there, there's enough there so they can you know, bring things back to life or make them functional. What I'm asking is what can we do as normal patients to keep those eyes as healthy as possible? What I have been doing, correct me if I'm wrong or there's a, you have a better advice, we've been taking the right type of turmeric, uh, which is you know, something, nothing crazy, just an herb, 
Um, gluten, omega-3, healthy diet, exercise, good sleep, vitamin A, and sunglasses protect your eyes as much as possible. My son, he always has the coolest sunglasses. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, with a healthy diet, how can you get those things um, organically? Salmon, tuna, he loves sushi. Do you have any other suggestions um, to add to a diet or, or to eliminate something from there or any other practices that we can do to keep our eyes as healthy as possible till you guys find your solutions? Yeah, I think you're doing all the right things. You're doing everything anyone could do. Um, the only other thing I would say is make sure you don't smoke. Smoking is probably really harmful, um, so I would not smoke, and I would try to avoid being around people who smoke. Um, but other than that, you're doing all the right things. There's some evidence that suggests exercise is helpful. There's some evidence that suggests all those things you just listed are helpful. Um, none of them are a cure, but as you said, you're just trying to maintain as, the best health you can for as long as possible. So keep doing all the things you're doing, uh, as, and hopefully we'll have more definitive treatments in the not-too-distant future. And don't smoke. Or what? Vape. Yeah, vaping is probably not good either. Yeah. Uh, I had a question. You mentioned the dual vector um, tests that are going on now. I was curious if there's any that were done on any of the Usher's uh, genes, and if so, like what have been some of the initial results of that? I believe that um, researchers are uh, investigating the dual vector approach to restore the Usher-1B uh, gene expression in the retina in animal models. Um, there is a recent, just it just came out, a, a primate model that was generated, again, with CRISPR-Cas9 technology. Uh, and uh, there is hope that this uh, primate model can be used to test some of these dual vector approaches. So I am aware of the of a myosin 7a uh, attempt uh, and, and we do not have yet the results of, of, uh, of those experiments. I think they're H2A too, maybe. H2A as well, for dual vector? Yeah. We're funding something, aren't we, for dual vector? Just 1B, not H2A. Okay, just 1B. Okay, thank you. Who would like to go next and has a microphone? So at this point, is there any treatment if you definitely knew which gene it was in Ush type one, type type one B? Is there any treatment at this moment? Not right now. Let's be clear: there are no FDA-approved treatments for any of the Usher syndromes right now. There are clinical trials underway, and I hope that will be different soon, but important to get genetic testing and get clinical evaluation so you know kind of where you're at on the spectrum of disease severity and progression so that you can determine whether you would be a candidate for any of the treatment trials or the treatments once they are hopefully FDA approved. You mentioned a few different um, uh, approaches generally, and and uh, mentioned ProQR. Um, are there other companies associated with the studies? Um, can you attach some of what what you've been talking about to to companies or or um, you know who, who's doing these studies? Uh, yeah. 
So I know there are a number of companies, and I don't know what I'm allowed to say, so I know there are, I'm just going to be generalized here just so I don't get in trouble, but there are a number of companies developing, I know ProQR is one that has a phase three trial enrolling patients right now. There are a number of other companies developing treatments, and I don't know what else I can say right now. Because <laughs> I don't know whether they've publicly announced the stage at which they're uh, in development. But I know that there are many that are under investigation for USH-2A and USH-1B, and maybe USH-1C, anyway, for Harmonin. Can you mention anything about USH-2A? Um, I know there are companies working to develop treatments for USH-2A. <laughs> so I know ProQR has one under development, or that is in patients. Yes, clinicaltrials.gov will tell you which ones are currently enrolling patients. Is there another good source? Not really. And I will put a plug in for the foundation's website. Yes. So on the foundation website, every quarter we update all clinical trials that are related to IRDs, and they are segmented by disease type. The reason I'm being cagey is one, I'm obligated to be cagey, and two, sometimes what happens is a company will be really eager to develop a particular treatment for H2A, and they'll talk about how they're gonna do it and what they wanna do, and, and then they won't do it, and they don't come through with it because for one reason or another it doesn't look promising or they don't have the ability or they don't care through, and so then everyone gets disappointed. So I'm just gonna be able to say what I can say, and I'm sorry that it's not as much as maybe there is. So we have time for maybe one question more. Okay, I'll, I'll give you. Yep. Can we let somebody in the back go? Okay. That's okay. I didn't know he had his hand up. Yeah, I know. I, we, go we, ahead. We may have time for two. We probably so. will make time for two. <laughs> okay, I think this is a quick one anyway. Um, Dr. Dinkulescu, you started using uh, pig models. What's your time frame going forwards with those studies? So um, right now our pigs are young. They are only six months of age. We would like to follow up until at least another six more months to see how the, the vision loss progresses. And simultaneously, we would like to begin to treat one eye in a group of animals. In other words, to do gene therapy simultaneously with the, um, evaluating the vision loss in the pigs. Monica? I still have a lot more, but I think one that I, you mentioned the type four. Who and how do the medical research community decide this is type four or this is type three G or this is type one A? Because type three and this new type four seem very similar, and I don't understand why there's this differentiation, and I don't know if that means like there are four types, if there's yeah. still something that needs to be discussed. Or yeah, 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 no, great question. So um, each of, okay, so the types are determined in the clinic by the doctor. Mm -hmm, that's exactly right. The phenotype is determined by the doctor, but the genotype informs which type it is. And so um, we usually, the doctor will, you go see the doctor, and the doctor will say, I think because you have hearing loss that started later in life, but you had normal hearing at birth, 
I would think either Usher 3 or Usher 4. And then normally we will send genetic testing and that will often help us know whether it's Usher type 3, which is associated with clearing one, or Usher type 4, which is uh, aryl, aryl sulfatase G. So the genetic characterization is different as well as a little bit of subtle clinical differences. Yep. Yeah, that happens sometimes. That happens sometimes. This is why when we do genetic testing, we do panels where we just test widely globally for everything. And we sometimes are very surprised where the doctor will think one thing and the genetics will say something totally different. I read this morning, unbelievable, I read this morning on Wikipedia, <laughs> reliable source, that <laughs> Watson, James Watson, had homozygous mutations in Ush in myosin 7A. Who knew that? And he never had any hearing or vision loss. So you sometimes see genetic things that you, and we would never have known that except that he had his own DNA tested because he was this pioneer of DNA. So um, your point is very well taken that we have to put the clinical information in complement and context and in correlation with the genetic information to really understand what's going on in a person. So type four would be if somebody had mutations in a gene called aryl sulfatase G. Well, so like type one has different genes that cause things. Correct. The phenotype of three and four They are, except three, the phenotype of three is earlier in onset. It's like late adolescence, early 20s, whereas four is like 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm -hmm. That's the clinical difference, but the genetic difference is what really seals the deal. Well, thank you all very much for attending this session. That's right, let's thank our speakers. Um, the next session block is adaptive and thriving as well as science sessions. So check your program for locations and sessions. Thank you. <laughs>